We lift up all of those who are gathered with us this morning, whatever their situation may be, Lord, whether they need healing, whether they need work, whether they're dealing with a loss or a difficulty in life, we know you're here. And we're gonna ask right now that you would extend your hand, Lord, and just do miracles in our midst that you would touch and strengthen. And thank you for the miracle of your word. Thank you that you breathed it out and it's profitable to us for everything we need. And we pray right now that as we navigate through this text in Genesis 2, we look at the meaning of life, we look at choices and cultivating our lives in your service. We pray that wherever you want us to go, Lord, lead us by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to your church. And may you be glorified as we respond to the word with a heart of obedience and a heart to hear what our maker says to us and our redeemer. We lay this time at your feet, Father. Pray that you'd be pleased with what we do and you would guide every step. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Genesis 2, 4 through 17 is the text, Cultivating a Gardener. We're gonna open with a summary statement in our Bibles. Genesis 2, verse 4, reads this way. This is the account. If you have the New King James, it says this is the history. The ESV says these are the generations. The King James uh, I don't have the King James here, but never mind. The Hebrew word is toledot. These, this is the account. These are the generations. This word toledot is often going to be seen in Genesis to introduce a new phase, maybe a new genealogical list or a new portion of scripture. We'll see this over and over again, toledot. But this is the, the account of the heavens and the earth. Now, I told you that Genesis 2 is going to give us a little bit more summary, and then it's going to skip around a little bit and get into more detail. And the specific detail will center in a, uh, instead of the whole universe being the picture, it's going to center in the garden. It's going to be a more localized treatment. But here we get a summary statement, the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, we do have a switch that I want to tell you about in the text, and it's in the name of God. Uh, to this point, we have had the name Elohim. It's the plural form of God. It's the triune nature of God and his creativity and his power. Now, notice in your Bible in verse 4 that it switches to the Lord God. This is going to now be Yahweh Elohim or Yahweh Elohim. Uh, why the combination? Why this different name uh, for God at this point? Because the name Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It's the relational name of God. And that's where we're moving in the text. One uh, JPS commentary says, this combination of the personal divine name Yahweh with the general term Elohim appears 29 times in the present literary unit, but only once in the Torah in Exodus 9 verse 30. It is exceedingly rare in the rest of the Bible. And so what we have is we have something that the narrator is telling us by the providence of the Holy Spirit. And he's telling us that we need to pay attention to the change in the name. The name combines the creator and the covenant, redeemer, aspects of the true God, his both creativity and his desire for relationship. So he is Yahweh Elohim. He is a personal God. He not only made us, he wants to know us. He could have just wound up the clock in creation and left us to ourselves, but he came to save us and he came to redeem us back to himself. And so there's the idea of creator and the idea of uh, the covenant God is, is what's here. Uh, 
Now we get a little bit more about an overview of creation. This is not all detail, but it says now, this is to prepare us for what's ahead. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. The reason for the mention of the shrub and the plant, and you get some varying views on this about what this specifically is. Shrub or plant could be broken down to Hebrew words, which indicates something that comes after the fall or after the curse. That may be what the writer's after. Or he may be looking at the earlier account of the creation as a whole. And he's not into the vegetation yet. He's just telling us that this is before. And, and I think mostly what he's getting at is the fact that there had been no rain yet. Look at verse 5. The Lord God, there's that name again, Yahweh Elohim, had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. So we have not hit day six yet. And this, the writer's telling us, so far the earth has not known rain. This is going to prepare us for the flood account in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, where we will see rain come. And we will see it rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And we will see the, the, the uh, floods of the deep open up and, and all of that. But here's what was happening prior to rain. A mist, verse 6, Genesis 2, streams, NIV, I think mist is better here, a spring, the Septuagint has it, used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground prior to rain. And it may be that it did not rain until the actual flood, there was a mist. If you've ever woken up on a morning and you go out and your lawn looks like it's been watered for hours, there's just a dew that's come. It hasn't rained, but there's a dew on the ground. It's something like that. God had an irrigation plan that at this point did not include rain. We do know from some evidence putting scripture with scripture that there appeared to be a water canopy upon the earth or over the earth, and it held out ultraviolet rays. Some of you may read your Bible and you may wonder, how did people live, you know, 700 and 800 and 900 years? Well, it could be attributed to the fact that ultraviolet rays were not getting through this water canopy. It had not yet rained, so the cycles were different, but a mist would come up and it would water the earth. It may have been a subterranean spring. Some believe it's the rivers that are mentioned later here were flooding or at flood stage, and they watered this area. But rain has not come, and that's the main point that is here. And now the writer shifts to day six. He skipped ahead. He's just kind of given us some bullet points, and he gets to the creation of man. He says, then, Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man. If you want the transliteration from Hebrew to English, man is ha-adam. The name for man is Adam. That's the way that you would render it in English. So God formed man. Here's the chemical components of man of dust from the ground. Scientists do tell us that the chemical makeup of our body matches the soil of the planet. We are in some way bonded to the earth. Not in a weird new age way where we kiss trees and hug squirrels and that kind of thing. <laughs> but in some ways, the earth is our mother. Not in the weird new age way, but in the way that we are connected and bonded to the planet. In fact, Adam is made from the chemical makeup of the ground. He is taken from the dust of the earth, and we will read later in Ecclesiastes, not this morning, but we've read it before, 
that from the dust he was taken and to the dust he will return. Sometimes you've, you've been at a memorial service or maybe a graveside and the, the pastor or someone will say, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's kind of where that comes from. Man returns to the dust, and Ecclesiastes goes on to say, and the spirit goes back to God who gave it. Jesus made it clear that you have a soul and that your soul is distinct from your body. That is your makeup. So in one sense, you are connected to heaven in the sense that God breathes life into us, but you're also connected to the planet. So you can think of the nature of man reflecting both those things. So God forms the man, ha-adam, of the dust of the ground, this is minha adama. So the dust of the ground is adama, and the man is Adam. So it's a play on words in Hebrew, but there's a close connection between where man comes from and what his name is. And notice what happens now. First, first let me pause for a second and say, the word formed is a Hebrew word that pops up throughout the Old Testament, and it's the word for a potter. You can think of Jeremiah 18 where Jeremiah goes to the potter's house and he witnesses the work of a potter and it's the potter, he's got the clay on his wheel and if you've ever seen a potter do his thing, you notice that he'll put the clay on there and he begins to shape and mold the vessel that he's going to make. Well, that's what's going on in here in terms of the Hebrew language. God is the master potter and he is shaping the clay. It would be interesting if there's going to be a viewing room in heaven somewhere to see what this looked like because man, before he had life, he was in some sort of raw, lifeless form. He was made by God, which tells us something about mankind. Mankind is made with intentionality. We are not an accident. We are not an afterthought. We are not, uh, we, don't, we don't come, our origins are not from a process of evolution. We don't come from the water. We come from the ground, at least in our initial origin. And there's a purposeful creation that occurs. God is shaping ears and molding nose, and this is in his thought. And remember, we're made in the image of God. In whatever way the physical makeup of mankind reflects God's image, it's interesting to note that God is the one shaping. Before, he would just say, and I shouldn't say just say because this is majestic, he would say, let there be light. He would speak something and it would become real in the power of his words, but now there's a more intimate uh, process in the making of man. God is directly involved. His hands are involved. He is shaping and molding like a master potter. Therefore, you and I are God's work of art. Don't just think of the outside. Think of your internal organs. Think of your circulatory system. Think of all the parts that are amazing in your body. This is all God's doing directly from the hand of God. He shapes mankind. He is the master potter. And he has made you for a purpose. The first man, we are told in 1 Corinthians 15, 47, is of the earth. He is earthy. So one way to render this, one writer has it this way, that the, the first earthling was of the earth. He was made of that stuff. And before God breathes life into him, this is what is before us. Now, it is interesting that when Jesus shows up on the planet, he heals a blind man on the Sabbath day. This is recorded in John chapter nine. You don't have to turn there, but let me just give you a quick overview of what occurs. So the disciples are passing by. 
there's a blind man, they notice him, he's been blind from birth, and there's a question about who sinned. And it's a, it's a confusion of theology. In those days, people thought if you were sick or you had some congenital disease, it was a function of some sort of sin. Your parents sinned, or there was even sin in the womb or in the pre-existence they even taught in some circles. Jesus said, no, that's not what this is about. This is that the works of God may be manifest in his life. And Jesus says, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And when he had said this, listen to this, he spat on the ground, Jesus spit on the ground. He made clay of his spit and he applied the clay to the man's eyes who had been born blind. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated means sent. And he, the blind man, went away and washed and he came back home seeing. What an amazing, can you imagine if you had never seen anything before? Your whole life, you've been in darkness, you've been blind, and now this man, this Messiah touches you. And we all know the controversy that follows, right? They ask him, who, who do you say he is? What did he do to you again? And he says, I already told you. <laughs> Why do you want to know again? And then they call his mom and dad. Is this your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. Well, what happened to him? We don't know. He's old enough. Ask him, <laughs> right? And back and forth they go. And what's amazing, the patristics, the, the church fathers, and, and those who look at this particular text find something interesting. They say that in the text of John 9, you've got to see that when Jesus takes the clay and he creates this, the, 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 the dirt and the spittle and the clay, it's taking us back to Genesis 2. And Jesus does this, by the way, on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day, to stir up more controversy. But they are, they are saying that when you see him make the eyes for the blind man, it's taking you all, all the way back to the Genesis account. And in fact, what Jesus is saying, as he does many times in John, both directly and indirectly, is, I am God. How much more would you need to see if you witnessed a man born blind who had eyes made out of clay and spittle? Would you then believe now, he did much more than that. But he's making a declaration that I am God. And the term in our Genesis account, formed, indicates the act of creation by careful design. This is a Hebrew word used later in Genesis 6-5 that indicates intention, where people take uh, thoughts and form them into evil and that kind of thing. But here, in the positive sense, it's the potter shaping the clay. It's the design of God, man, is directly designed by God Almighty. And God forms him from the dust of the ground. The dust of the ground is in his very name. And now he is about to breathe into him life. Man is formed, but he appears to be lifeless. And think about the days of creation. As Mel took us through six days, God forms and fills. He makes something, and then on a later day, he fills it. He creates something, then he fills it. He forms and fills, and in the same way, he does this with man. He forms man, and then he fills man. What does he fill him with? The breath of life. He breathes life into his nostrils. God forms him, and then God makes him alive. He energizes him, and there's a parallel between creation and the breath of life and recreation as a Christian. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in trespasses and sins, right? We're not alive. People are walking around. Yeah, their heart's beating, but they're dead spiritually speaking. 
and we are made alive in Jesus Christ. And spiritually, the parallel is this, that you're dead in sin and trespasses, and when God breathes new life into you, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. And when he does, you are born again. You are truly alive. I have come that you might have what? Life and have it to the full. So there is a parallel between the Genesis account of creation and regeneration or what happens when you are born again from above. You're born again of the Holy Spirit. Adam is now going to experience the breath of God. By miracle, one writer says, breath breathed into him is warmly personal with face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that, at that. Man is lifeless, lifeless and he comes to life and only life comes from life. Another reason why evolution is bankrupt. You don't get life from non-life, but the biblical account is life comes from life. It comes from the ultimate life, God himself. And God breathes life into man. So man does reflect his maker. The language conveys the idea of a good puff that would revive a fire. Here's the word breath. There is a shared breath, a link between Adam and his maker. The breath may be the narrator's way of describing the infusion of the holy, excuse me, of the human spirit with its moral, intellectual, relational, and spiritual capacities. God showed tender mercy and intimate concern in the way he shaped man. Think about your capacity to think. Think about your ability to think through spiritual things and deeper philosophical realities. All those come from the maker. Now man has life. He's in a garden and we know what's coming. Man is now going to have a choice. There's going to be the cultivation of a gardener. Now he's going to be put in a place. He now has life from his maker, but now he's going to get to choose. And two trees are going to take center stage in this garden. And we've got to ask the question, what's the purpose of the trees? Why would God give an option for evil at this point in man's history? Because it goes back to the reason you were created. If I did a class right now, I had you guys surveyed, and I said, why do you think God made human beings, mankind? Some of you who have attended seminary or been around long enough would say, to glorify God. Some of you would say, we're made for the pleasure of God, and I think both of those are right on the mark. But I think it's more than that. I think we were made to fellowship with God. I think God didn't need to bother creating us, but his love is so enormous, he wanted to love more of us, and so he created us, and he created us with a capacity to love him back. There's a reciprocal love between man and God, but it's a love of choice. If it were not a love of choice, it would not be love. The reason that love has meaning is because you choose it. You might sacrifice for somebody. You might give your time to them. You may be uh, true to a covenant even when days are difficult. Why do you do that? Not because it's easy on you, but because you have made a decision to love. Love is a decision. If it weren't, it would have no meaning. If you were pre-programmed to love, then love would be rendered meaningless. So in the garden, man is confronted early in the history of the Bible's narrative with a choice. And first, God plants him. The potter plants as well. Look at verse 8. It says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. God makes the man, and then he makes a home for the man. And this now points us to this place called Eden, the Garden of Eden. 
the common Hebrew meaning of Eden is delight. It could be even rendered Eden as a paradise of delight. Uh, Jewish scholars, some Jewish scholars see in roots of this word the idea of that which is undetermined or not yet. So they see in Eden a, de- a place of delight, but a not yetness to it in this sense that man's destiny is still not determined. So Eden may have some attachments to the idea of not yet or what is to come. Man has great potential both for glory and for disaster. <laughs> Because he is given the opportunity to choose. He is given the opportunity to respond to what God has given to him. The word paradise speaks of a park or a garden. Eden was some sort of paradise, a place of exceptional blessedness, happiness, delight. It's a descriptive name of heaven. The word is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul said he was taken up to the third heaven in some sort of near-death experience, 2 Corinthians 12, 4, which he describes as paradise. And Jesus says we're going to be able to be in the paradise of God in Revelation 2, 7. Paradise is a Persian word which speaks of a wooded park, an enclosed walled orchard, a garden with fruit trees. The Persian word pardis means a pleasure ground or a park or a king's garden. In history, Uh, We are told that if a Persian king, for example, wanted to honor somebody in the kingdom, you got this special uh, uh, award that you would be given is a day in the king's garden. You got to walk with the king in his garden and he would take you around and he would show you the beauty of it. You got kind of a special backstage pass, if you will. Well, that's really the language that the Bible gives us of paradise, Eden. It's a beautiful place. It's a place... Uh, where everything is at your fingertips. It's a garden, the Garden of Eden, mentioned uh, in 2.15, 3.23, and 24, later in Ezekiel. And so here's the man. He's been made, he's been planted. And the Bible says in Genesis 2.9, and out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight. So there was a variety in the garden, beautiful trees. Uh, There's a young girl, I don't know if you guys have seen her paintings, but she has painted some incredible things, including the face of Jesus, and she's included colors in some of her paintings that are just mind-blowing. And it just gives you this idea, whether whatever she has experienced, the the beauty of this place is probably beyond what we could imagine. You know, if you you could picture the the most beautiful place on earth that you've been with trees and maybe autumn leaves and running water or whatever, you you ain't seen nothing yet, baby. Uh, The best is yet to come. But here's where Adam is. He has direct fellowship with his maker, all this variety of trees. They're all pleasing to the sight. They're good for food. And all of a sudden, with all the trees that are there, there, we're told about two trees that take center stage. There's the tree of life, middle of verse 9, also in the midst of the garden, it's in the middle, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree will be the one that the serpent will entice Eve with because it is pleasant to the eyes. It's able to make one wise. It looks good for food. And she will be enticed by her desire. 
implanted, tempted by the serpent. We'll talk about that in Genesis 3. But for now, there are two trees that are there. They take center stage. We know the tree of life for sure is in the midst of the garden. It's in the middle. We're told that plainly. We don't know if the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is right there as well. We don't know if there's two trees side by side or if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is elsewhere. The language could allow, I think, for both. But there's two trees. One tree brings life. The other tree brings what? Death. And man now is confronted with a choice. He's confronted with all these varieties. We'll see later, God says, you can eat of any of these trees. You can eat to your heart's desire. Isn't that a blessing? I don't think you gained weight in the precursor world. So he had all these varieties, ice cream trees. My imagination. Frozen yogurt trees. And here's these two trees. We will be told that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's told he can't take from that tree. That's the one tree. His, he's given wide range. He can have everything. It's at his fingertips to his heart's desire. There's only one tree he's told to stay away from. That's the one he ends up at. It's kind of like when you see a bench that says wet paint. Is it really wet? I don't know. <laughs> and then you tell your brother, sit down on that. That's dry. That's what we do, right? So two trees are there. Have you ever thought about this? Why would God ask human beings not to eat of a tree that provides knowledge of good and evil? What? I thought that life was really captured in knowing what's good and what's evil. And you say, well, maybe they were totally innocent. Maybe they didn't know anything prior to taking of this forbidden fruit. However, wait a second. How could God punish them if they didn't know what was good and what was evil? A boundary marker was put up. They were told the consequences. When my kids were growing up, I, one of my children, who will remain unnamed for relational reasons, <laughs> I couldn't get the child to stay in bed. I would do everything. The kid would not stay in bed. I would make promises. (laughs) And so I read a little bit of James Dobson, and he said, look, you got to draw the boundary, and you got to show the kid what you're going to do. And then if he doesn't obey, follow through. So we had the talk. So I said, son, you are to stay in this bed. And if you get out of this bed, daddy going to spank you. And I showed him. I'll give you a couple of these. Ooh. All right? Yeah, Daddy. All right. Covers, pray. I thought we had an understanding. <laughs> I begin to walk down our hallway, and something is clearly behind me. It's that child. Moment of decision. He chose tree B. <laughs> we will now apply the board of understanding to the seat of knowledge. And so... All that stuff, right? So you're comforting them, right? So you're supposed to hug them afterwards. Say, Daddy told you, I, I love you, but back in the bed. Okay. Now we have an understanding, right? <laughs> Don't get out of the bed. You got out of the bed. All right? Yes, Daddy. I start going down the hallway, pray tell. 
he's there again. <laughs> we went through this, I think, three times until finally we were communicating clearly. <laughs> One tree gives life. One tree brings death. Brothers and sisters, that's what life is all about. This garden is a picture of existence. This garden is a picture of your life. You get to choose what you want to do. Now, the knowledge of good and evil in Hebrew, the word know or knowing has layers, and it can speak of an intimate knowledge of experience. They know good. Maybe they don't know evil yet, and maybe that's the part that God's warning them about. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a scripture a little later, I think it's in Deuteronomy, that talks about the innocence of children. Think of it this way. When a child is innocent, we say, it's not like that child doesn't have any intellectual capacities. They know stuff, but they're innocent in regard to evil, and we want to keep it that way, right? And so when something evil happens to an innocent child, it's one of the most terrible things on the planet. Now, God's grace can cover all of that, and we've all been through our stuff, but here's my point. We want to protect innocence as much as possible. I don't think Adam and Eve prior to the fall were intellectually incapacitated or dumb. In fact, uh, I think the evidence is they were using more of their brains than we do. We use, most of us in the room use 1% of our brains. Don't look at anybody right now. <laughs> Actually, I think it's 10%, right? But, but what they were innocent in, this is Pastor Michael's conjecture, is I think they were innocent in evil. I think God was saying, if you go there, you're going to experience something that I can't fully explain to you now, but it's going to leave a mark on your life. In fact, we're going to call that sin. And that sin is going to be so devastating, it's going to separate you from me. And we're going to have to do radical things, but the choice is going to be yours. You've got all this garden of delight. It's all here for you. Just stay away from that one tree. I don't want you to go there. I don't want you to know the depths of that. I want to keep you in innocence. And in fact, we do know that once they, their eyes are open, they feel shame. They hide from God. And then the cherubs show up and they have to guard the way to the tree of life lest they partake and live forever. You might ask, well, why would angels guard the tree of life? What's so bad about living forever? Because I think what God is saying is that in their fallen state, the moment that they eat, they become mortal. There's a separation and that pure relationship is now hurt. And it's not gonna be restored again until the end of the age when there's the resurrection and all of that. And what's interesting about the guarding of the uh, Garden of Eden is it's done by cherubs. I'll just plant this in your mind for a second. The only other place I think that cherubs show up is they're on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark is the law of God. And Moses says to Israel, choose. You want life or death. In choosing, what you get to do is choose whether you're going to follow God or the ways of the pagan nations. For the Christian, you choose to trust in Christ and follow him, or you choose to go your own way. Maybe the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is moral autonomy. I want to be my own God. That's what Satan told our first parents. God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be as God's knowing good and evil. And so he says God's holding back. Now a river, 10, flowed out of Eden to water the garden. 
And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah. Havilah actually can be translated sand land. This was the first sand lot in history. They played baseball here. Just, just kidding. Actually, there was gold there. And the gold of that land is good. The delium, the onyx stone are there, 13. The name of the second river is Gihon. There's Gihon Springs in Israel, um, but there's other water uh, um, rivers and so forth that had this name in history. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The third name, the name of the third river is Tigris. We know that name. It flows east of Assyria. We get some location. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, of all I could tell you about these rivers and the conjecture of where the Garden of Eden is, we just don't know. Some people believe the Garden of Eden is in the Persian Gulf. Some people believe it's in the, uh, the heart of Israel, even in the area of Jerusalem because of the Gihon Springs. But the truth of the matter is, we don't know for sure, and here's why we don't know, because the world was flooded and all the rivers that existed at that time were obliterated and changed. The world was underwater, folks. Second Peter 3.6 tells us that that world that was, was destroyed by water. So things changed after the flood. We don't know where the Garden of Eden was for sure. We have some indicators. You say, well, why do we have a Tigris? Why do we have a Euphrates today? Because people repeat names all the time. It doesn't mean they were the original rivers and this brings up all kinds of questions. I'm not going to spend time there because I think most of them are just conjecture. Let's move on to verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man. Now we have this garden scene. He put him into the garden of Eden. And here's his call. He's there to cultivate Abad and to keep it Shamar. If you have an NIV, it says, the Lord God took the man. He put him in the garden of Eden to work it tend it, New King James, and take care of it. Whatever notions you have about paradise, they don't include lying in a hammock seven days a week. <laughs> Some of you had that notion, right? Paradise, yeah. Sorry. The six days of work and one day of rest were established before the fall. Work was given to Adam before the fall. He had a job. His job was keeping and cultivating Work is not evil. Weeds are evil. <laughs> Amen? They come after the fall. Thorns and thistles, and that's the curse. I would plant more things except for weeds and rocks. But the soil was probably more pristine and beautiful, and, and Adam had work to do. And here's an early indication of the cultivation of a man. He is, notice in verse 15, he is called to cultivate and keep. May I speak to the men for a moment? Since Adam is the focus of this particular text, your job running throughout the scriptures is to be a steward. Adam is the first bondservant. He is the first eved. He is the first uh, servant of most high God. And he's been made by his maker, but he's been given a job. He has dominion, as we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2. And now what he does he says he's, he's supposed to do something. He's got a six-in-one routine. Six days he will work, one day he will rest. And on those six days, he's to bring cultivation to the garden and to keep it. Let me give you some uh, Hebrew words and just break down these ideas. The word cultivate, abad, is the normal Hebrew verb meaning to serve. It has the idea of labor. It means to work, to serve, to till. 
The word generally means that which promotes development or growth. Um, the word cultivate, abad. It also includes the idea of cultivate, cultivating a person's mind by training and studying. Part of the cultivation process for land is soil preparation. It includes destroying weeds, preventing crusting, which means keeping the ground from getting hard, and preserving moisture. One who cultivates is one who promotes growth. Gentlemen, your job from Almighty God is to provide an environment for your family and for whatever ministry God has entrusted to you to help cultivate growth. That's your job. That's what it means to be a man. That's what it means to be masculine. You want to know what biblical masculinity is? All these guys, we, we ask them, what does it mean to be a man? They have no clue. What it means to be a man is to see yourself as a steward of Almighty God and to see yourself as a cultivator, promoting growth in others, your children, your grandchildren, in your ministry, wherever you go, by God's grace, you are to be a cultivator. But it's more than that. You are to keep Shamar, the word keep means to be in charge of, to guard, to protect, to attend to. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. We are to protect and serve. Isn't it interesting? Somebody after first service came up to me and said, that's on our police cars. That's what we are to do as men. We are to guard what God has entrusted to us and to bring levels of cultivation, take care of the wife of your youth and take care of your family. That's what it means to be a man. You know, I hear phrases in the military. They always want to look their best. They always want to do their best. Well, as a Christian, how about us? Why is it that we feel like we can just mail it in and do whatever we want? No, grace is not an excuse for sin. One tree brings life, the other death. And the Lord God commanded, 16, as we wrap up the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowing or the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. God has warned him, He's given him a positive command. Hey, you, everything's at your fingertips. Have at it. Have fun. Here's your work. Take care of it. It's yours. Here you go. Here's your home. Be blessed. One caveat. Not even in small print. <laughs> that tree, don't go there. Make sure in the cultivating and guarding process that your wife doesn't go there. And we'll see Adam by the tree next chapter, right? Don't know what happened to him. Probably watching a football game. I don't know, you know. <laughs> and God says that in the day you eat of it, he's not saying that you're going to drop dead. The, not like Snow White, in the moment you eat the apple. It's <sighs> probably where that comes from. It's in the day you eat of it, you will become mortal. This mortal, 1 Corinthians 15, must put on immortality. The moment they, eat, they ate of the forbidden fruit, whatever it was, whether an apple or something else, they became mortal. They would have lived forever had they partaken of the tree of life. I don't know if that meant that they would be in the garden forever or like Enoch be taken out sometime when that course of life was over, but they would have lived forever in that pristine state. But now we know they're going to take of it. And that, in that moment, they are going to become mortal. 
they're going to die. The sad reality of humans' dilemma, why we die, is one word. It's the word sin. Sin is a choice. Oh, sin includes falling short of perfection. It's true. But sin is to basically say, I will do it my way. Sin is disobedience to the law. Now, I've got good news for you, though. Even though we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God did something about it. And God came down to his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you Revelation 22 and we're done. All the way, there's a connection between Genesis and Revelation. I think, from my recollection, the most mentions of the tree of life show up in Revelation 22. So let me show you how this works. This is uh, some interesting stuff. And I just want to remind you as you turn there, it says, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, that's Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. In Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. Now we fast forward to Revelation 22. We were told about the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. Anybody written in it is in the kingdom. And then look at 22.1 Revelation. And he showed me, John's writing, a river of the water of life. Think of the rivers back in Genesis. A pure river, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So the river, this water of life, flows out from God. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was what? There's the tree of life. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. What's interesting about the tree of life was we know nothing about it from those, the verses we read. <laughs> we know nothing. We do know it imparts life. We do know they'll live forever if they eat of it, but we don't know much about the tree. Well, here we're told some detail. You see, this tree bears 12 kinds of fruit, the one tree does, yielding its fruit every month. Brothers and sisters, just a side note, this cannot be eternity. There's time here. There's fruit being born every month. This, got, this has got to be the millennial reign of Christ, which tells me something else. In the New Jerusalem, which is being described in Revelation 21 and 22, the tree of life reappears as it was in the Garden of Eden. Eden will be restored and the river of life will be there. Eden will be reestablished and the tree of life will show up. And here's the beauty of this. The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has been dealt with because Jesus Christ died on a tree. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the zulon. That's the, not the word for cross, it's the word for tree. On the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, 1 Peter 2.24, you are healed. So he dies on a tree. Interesting, isn't it? And now we have access into this place and this tree's there again and the tree yielding these different crops of fruit. The leaves of the tree, Revelation 22, 2, are for what? The healing of the nations. I think we're in the millennium and I think put yourself there because you're going to see this. This is a head for you and me. 
and there shall no longer be any curse. That has been obliterated in Christ now. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, in this new Jerusalem, and his bondservants, we go all the way back from Adam, the first bondservant, to the church shall serve him, and they incredibly shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of the lamp or light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign for how long? They shall reign forever and ever. Notice a couple more mentions of the tree of life. In verse 14, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Skip down to verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come, 17. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let him, let the one who wishes to take of the water of life, it won't cost you anything. It's been paid. It's without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. One day we're going to see his face. This tree of life is going to be there. Eden will be restored. Man, there's some cool stuff ahead. So hang on, hold on. But if you don't know Christ... Trust him, man. Don't believe the devil's lie. Don't go the world's way because if you do, you will end up in disaster. If you do, you will end up experiencing the bitterness of God's wrath and judgment and he's made a way. Jesus is the way. He's the truth and he's the life and no one's going to come to the Father except through him. Do you know him? Don't. Let your head hit the pillow tonight without settling it. You want your part in that holy city? You want to partake of that tree of life? You want to know the innocence of your relationship with God? You want to have things restored? You want to be forgiven of every sin that you've ever committed? You want to know life in that more abundantly? It's found in Christ and him alone. He's your creator. He made you. He died for you. And he's come to give you life. So if you're a saint here this morning, be encouraged. If you're a prodigal, get back to him. And if you don't know Christ, get saved. Get saved. Run to him. You don't have to have a perfect prayer. Just say, Lord, I believe. I'm going to turn from my sin and doing it my way. I'm turning from that tree. And I'm going to turn to the one who gives life. Pray it right now. Let's close our eyes, bow our hearts. Lord Jesus, if it's you, pray it right now. Come into my life. Thank you that you died on the cross for me. Say it to him if it's you. Thank you that you rose to defeat death. I turn from my sin and I trust in you. Thank you that you died on that tree. Shed your blood. Rose from the dead. Be my Lord and be my Savior. Lord, for those who are crying out to you, may you save them radically. May you breathe into their nostrils the breath of new life. May you bless the precious saints that are here with the hope of that millennial city where we will see your face. We will be with you face to face. Thank you for the conditions that will be restored. What you intended in the beginning, 
Man cannot mess it up forever. It'll be restored. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We worship you. And with anticipation in our hearts, we say thank you. And we look forward to that day. And until that day comes, may we guard and cultivate what you've granted to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.